Welcome to the IFI podcast from the Irish Film Institute. I'm Stephen Boylan, and this is the penultimate in our short season of IFI podcasts we're making available during the current COVID-19 outbreak. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can contact us on Facebook and Instagram at Irish Film Institute, or on Twitter at IFI underscore dub. In this week's episode, we return to January of this year and the visit of Hollywood screenwriter Jeb Stewart to the IFI for a special event in conjunction with the Writers Guild of Ireland. Hosted by Hugh Farley, director of the Writers Guild, Jeb Stewart talked about his journey to becoming a screenwriter, working on blockbusters such as Die Hard and The Fugitive, and his reasons for coming to Ireland for his latest project. Enjoy. Uh, Let's start just by clarifying why it is that you're in Ireland. I'm here uh, to uh, do a Netflix show. Uh, uh, It's a sort of continuation of the Viking saga that Michael Hurst began uh, that was shot down at at Ashford Studios. Mm over the last six years, and, um, and uh, our show uh, is a continuation. If Michael's show is sort of the, the rise of the Vikings, mine will be sort of the, the end of the Viking, <laughs> which I need to come up with a more exciting way to say that. I think it's, <laughs> let's say it's the Viking dominance of, of, of the world. Anyway, it's a Netflix show, and it will be down in, uh, in Wycliffe. Can you tell us, what is the difference between writing for Netflix as opposed to working for the studios in the 90s? How has the, the culture of the screen industries changed? Well, I mean, when you've been in the writing business as long as I have, I, when I started, I went through a graduate program, a couple of graduate programs. Um, and uh, when, I was, uh, when I was working on my first master's, I was teaching a class in... Um, you know, a large auditorium type of class of undergraduate students. And we were talking about media, and that was sort of in the, uh, the, the dawn of cable. And I can remember saying, you know, someday when there are 200 channels and suddenly there was this voice in the back of the room, and it was my advisor. Uh, she was a, you know, a, a world-renowned media researcher, and she said, that will never happen. <laughs> and it was like this voice from God. And I looked up, and she comes down and interrupts my class and said, you know, Mr. Stewart, that will never happen. There will never even be 50 channels of cable. And I was like, well, Dr. Check, that's no offense, but that's ridiculous. I mean, there, you know, we could go around the room. We started going around the room. What would you watch? What would you watch? And within about two minutes, she turned and walked out. And I should have known there and gotten out of screenwriting and bought a cable company because... Yeah, the rest would be history. But but I've seen this media change going for a long, long time. And streaming is just uh, uh, it's a, it's a wonderful it's wonderful for writers. It's uh, I'm not sure how much we can support. I don't want to sound like Dr. Check saying, "Oh, there'll never be ten streaming services." It's not, there. I don't know how many there are now. But the question is, uh, it's a wonderful thing to write into as opposed to writing. If you're writing for television, you're no longer having to sell you know, Ford automobiles or soap or anything like that. You can write a, uh, a, a real dramatic piece. You know, you're not tied to a 43-page script that's going to have five interruptions to it or whatever it is in whatever market you're selling into. So you can actually build something that has almost a, a, a feature quality to it within a different format. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm seeing, I, uh, you know, until recently I've taught at... Um, Northwestern University in Chicago, screenwriting there, and a lot of my students are coming out of the, um, the playwright world, 
And uh, it's interesting how some, you know, a lot of them are, are completely unencumbered and to suddenly have to be in a working environment for a Netflix or a Disney Plus or somebody like that. It, 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 we're dealing with these issues all the time. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's, it's a great time to be, to be a writer. And I see the creative opportunity of long-form television, and we see some incredible writing, I think. And the depth of the writing and the quality of the writing is, is just amazing. What do you think? I mean, obviously, America has had screenwriting film schools at least until the, or at least from the early mid '60s. I think Hake Manoogian and NYU and Columbia and UCLA and USC, yeah, yeah. very well established. But there's, um, what do you think it is about the the culture of that film school education and people going through? Uh, and serving some kind of apprenticeship in low-budget films or whatever that has... Why do you think there's such quality there, I guess? Well, it's interesting. When I, uh, I went into graduate, a graduate program uh, by, def by default, I was... This is to, to digress just a little bit, but I went to write novels, and, uh, and I was newly married, and um, my wife was very supportive of that, and after about a year of, of, of amazing series of rejections... I came home one day to, uh, I was a tennis pro, and, um, uh, and so I came home from, from work, uh, and my wife met me, and she said, and it was what we would call an intervention, which is like, you know, honey, I love you, I want to support you, but um, this writing thing, we need to figure this out. And I said, well, we're figuring it out, and she said, no, I've figured it out. I'm sending you to a two-day aptitude test. Okay, to see if you have any aptitude for writing. And, and I'm like, are those things, do they exist? And she said, absolutely. Now she, I was living in South Carolina. If you're familiar with, with the U.S. or the eastern U.S., she had left a great job in Manhattan to come down to live on the outskirts of the world in, in South Carolina. So she wasn't going to stay there just out of love. So I, you know, I'm as bluntly as possible. So anyway, I said, I said, well, what happens if I don't have any aptitude for that? And she said, you'll do what everybody else with an English major does. You, you'll become a lawyer or we'll go to business school or we'll do something, but we've got to do something. So I went off to this program. I'm sorry to digress, but Not this, is, this is a long answer to a short question. Uh, and, um, and the first day there was a PhD who ran the program, and the, the PhD said, uh, come in, we'll set up. It's eight hours of testing. And eight hours to figure out if I'm a writer or not. I said, wow. But anyway, I said, you know, I, every five seconds I drop the little thing that I wanted to be a writer. He said, yeah, yeah, I get that. So anyway, after the first day, I come into the parking lot uh, at 7 a.m. the second day of the testing. And I'm exhausted, and I think this is all, you know, BS. And, and he's standing in the parking lot with this great big sheaf of computer paper. You know, in those days it was that flip-flop stuff. Mm -hmm. And he's waving it like in you know, this, this tone. And he said, he said, oh, my God. We've never had anybody tested so incredibly creative. You're off the charts. And I said, really? I said, wow, to be a writer. And he said, oh, no, to be a florist. <laughs> and I thought, oh, God, here, business school, here I come. So anyway, I said, uh, I said okay, okay. Well, he said, don't worry. It was another day of testing. Come on inside. So I went inside. And while I'm sitting there thinking about my life going down the tubes, um, I, there was a Time Magazine article on Hollywood um, and there was a little sidebar article about a screenwriter. And he had never had a movie made. And he made about $250,000 a year. This is like 1980. And, uh, and he was very happy, apparently, according to this article. And I thought, that's the job for me. Okay, forget about this novel stuff. 
I have to become a screenwriter. I mean, I've got the failure thing down, okay? <laughs> and it's just a matter of figuring out how to do that. So uh, I hopped up and I pulled down. I didn't know anything about film schools. So I pulled down any graduate program I could possibly find. The only ones I knew about were NYU, which was a very good um, program. Obviously, UCLA, USC was really at that point pre-George Lucas, you know, so it, was, it didn't have the power, but it was still SC, uh, American Film Institute. Um, anyway, that was about it. Uh, my alma mater, which was the University of North Carolina, where, which had a great literary tradition, um, uh, Thomas Wolfe had gone there. It was, it was really great from the, from, the, from the fiction side. Had one measly screenwriting course but I th- in a graduate program on radio, television, and motion picture, but I thought, I can make that work. So I, I told my first gigantic lie, which was I went to the PhD and said, my wife's father is gravely ill, and I can't be here for the second day. i got to go because the, the, to get into that program, it closed admissions the next day. So I needed to get all my recommendations and everything wrapped up in that application in. Well, I had to drive five hours back down to South Carolina. My wife met me at the front door, and she said, well, what did they say? And I said, they said I scored off the charts. They've never had numbers like this to be a screenwriter, which is kind of like saying to be an astronaut. <laughs> it, it, you know it exists, but how do you get there? So I, I, she had just graduated from Chapel Hill as well, so I said, well, North Carolina has a program, a master's uh, in radio, television, and motion pictures. And, but the problem is I have to get my application in tomorrow. And, you know, my wife, bless her heart, said, well, let's get back in the car. We got back in the car. We drove five hours back into North Carolina. I slept on the doorstep of all my professors from undergraduate, got my recommendation in, and three months later I'm in graduate school. And then two years later I'm in another graduate program at Stanford University in California. And then I did a year postgraduate work on dramatic form. So that's how I got into film school, which was completely defensive. I was trying not to go to law school. Mm -hmm. I do think now that I have taught in a, in a, a very good uh, – Stanford University, where I, I did most of my graduate work, uh, was strictly screenwriting. No, you know, no stage, nothing else. There was no other impurities into the strain, and I learned with a phenomenal uh, professor, Julian Blaustein, who had been a great producer. Uh, and we were – even though we were in Northern California, we had this flow, uh, absolute river of current scripts coming up. So every week we had to break down five scripts uh, that were actually in the agencies at that moment, getting ready to be prepped at that moment. Um, we had a great flow of writers coming up from Los Angeles. I was, uh, you know, as you can probably tell, I was very interested in suspense. And because of the age of my professor, who had done a Hitchcock movie, uh, he, I, I had a wonderful opportunity to have private meals with some of Hitchcock's writers. So, uh, you know, people like Ernie Lehman, who did North by Northwest, and I was working on my, um, on my graduate project, which ended up being Switchback, which is a, if, uh, one of my actors, Jared Leto, said, it's a slow chase movie, <laughs> which it kind of is, but you, it's like a North by Northwest type of stuff. So to have those opportunities were terrific. Um, it, you know, graduate programs are not for everybody, mm-hmm. but they, they, they're terrific. And now there are many, many more out there than there were before. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're quite good. Last comment. Mm-hmm. Okay. The, the thing about any program, whether it's a graduate program or something you take online 
or whether it's just you know you come into it from the acting world or however you come in from the to the writing thing the the key about uh, about any successful program is confidence uh, what I try to instill in my students uh, or any writers that I work with um, is you're paid to be the the architect or the or, or the or the guide in, in this situation. And there's so many times writers are really wonderful about being very proud of your work, but it, the the minute it gets you know somebody comes in and you know a production designer or a director or a producer somebody gives the push, it's like, well you know I. If you fall out of the art world and you're back into the the business side of this. You know, I've got to pay my rent. I got to do this. Writers just have to be confident about that work. That is what. Uh, that's the deal. You're if you're building a building that's 50 stories high. I run into this all the time, uh, where somebody else has come in, uh, whether it's a director or somebody, and it looks great and shiny on the outside. But you know, to use the analogy, there are no bathrooms between the 20th and the 50th floor. Well, that doesn't work. You, you know, you have to know your building, and you know that you know you have to provide these kind of facilities. Mm-hmm. So that's what you know. That's what I kind of drive. It, you know, when when somebody sit, comes to you and says, "I don't like the scenes from page 15 into you know to 30," you have to be able to say, "Here's why those exist. There's a reason for all of this type of." Uh, and uh, and that's that's a that's a tough thing, but that's that's what the writer needs to be in this new world of of, of streaming and everything like that too. Well, your analogy about the knowing what happens between the floors is particularly apposite in relation to Die Hard. <laughs> and any of you who've read Jeb's drafts for uh, Die Hard, and you can find them online, it's a masterpiece of, of screenwriting. And one of the, the I, I think screenwriting, in a sense, is the great American art form. I mean, the, of course, world cinema has, has wonderful writers and directors and so forth. But in terms of narrativity, in terms of a good read, a well-constructed screenplay like Die Hard, for example, is a a joy to read. And there are a lot of technical problems that you had to overcome about being really clear on the page about where everybody is without making it incredibly confusing. People always say that producers have very short attention spans. And you can imagine... The anxiety of trying to say, well, you know, so there's this bit on the 33rd floor, and then, oh, no, we're back in the office of the 31st floor, and so forth. And that must have been very challenging for you, just as a, a technical bit of writing to solve. Well, well, well yeah, and to back this up even further, you know, I, I, when I was sent Nothing Lasts Forever, which was the novel that Die Hard was based on, I was, uh, uh, I was working over at uh, Disney. Um, I had signed an exclusive deal for Disney. And, uh, and, and at that time, and I'm not sure, I haven't, I haven't worked there in years, but it was, it was a terrible place to be working and an even worse place to have an exclusive deal because they wouldn't let you do anything else. Mm-hmm. But you did get five weeks after you turned in a project that you were non-exclusive. And so that was written in five weeks. And I got sent the novel, and it was about, if you've ever read this novel, it's a wonderful, good little book uh, by Broderick Thorpe, but it's about a 65-year-old man who goes to Los Angeles from New York and drops his 40-year-old daughter off of a building by accident. But still, by accident or not, it was, I thought it was a pretty crappy idea to make a movie out of it. But, um, but anyway, it, it, the, the interesting thing about that is that it was also told in an interior monologue. So there, were, there was nothing out there. So it's like this blank slate with, just, with characters coming in. And 
once it was taken out of this idea of the 65-year-old man dropping the 40-year-old woman off the building and it became, you know, a 29-year-old, 30-year-old guy who comes to Los Angeles just to say he's sorry to his wife and then all sorts of stuff happens, then it takes off on a, on a, on a different place. I will say this, that my idea, and you touched on it, was to make sure that when the reader picks it up that they just get sucked into it. And when we, were, we started production... Uh, I got visited by the first AD, and everybody said, God, this works great. It was just like a Swiss watch, all this kind of you know, stuff where people were very nice. And the AD sits down with me, and he says, all right, can we look at some things? And he said, you, have, you start with 12 terrorists. And I said, right. And he said, okay, on page 6, here are the 12 people, and you know, I keep on page, I said, right. And he said, on page 10, we have 15 terrorists. <laughs> okay. And he said, and then you kill some of them. Yeah, on page 12. Uh, yeah, yeah, and then he said, and then, so we're down to seven, and then we're back up to ten. I said, I get where this is going. I need to go back through and, and, <laughs> and get everything. But I had literally, it was one of the, you know, and it, it's, it's only happened to me, you know, once or twice, but it went in on a Friday as a read, and it was greenlit on a Sunday. So they didn't, they didn't have a second draft at, at first. I, I did maybe four or five drafts after that, okay. but that's how quickly that. And... Um, given that, I guess, this novel, you were hired to adapt this novel. Right. Uh, so um, the producers who had hired you to do the gig, uh, first of all, how did you get to the point of realizing that this was not a vehicle for Frank Sinatra, which I believe was the original <laughs> plan, and this uh, insight about changing the, the uh, character to a, a younger character with a, a different situation. And how did they deal with that? I mean, they put money down for this novel. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. You'll hear lots of stories, but, but the reality was th- Larry Gordon was the producer that I worked. Joel Silver came into it later. And, and Joel is famous in Hollywood of, you know being that kind of out there guy who, you know, like Tom Cruise character in Tropic Thunder, and he, he is that. But Larry Gordon was the opposite type of producer. He was a, 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 a small guy, you know, bearded fellow who had done lots and lots of movies, that, um, but, but, but he basically trusted the writer, which is a really nice situation. And when I came and pitched him the story, which was basically the story that there's a cop who comes back to... to you know, make amends with his wife, and he's, he doesn't, and then the, the terrorists come in. That was the start of that, that particular piece in terms of their... They, Fox, had absolutely no ambition for this project. I mean, I was so under the radar, which is such a blessing to be under the radar. We have absolutely... Uh, it, it's never happened to me in my career since then. The, the expectation level is always up here, but the expectation level was below this stage. It was subterranean. So um, uh, when I turned it in, I think people were like, wow, I didn't realize that. The Frank Sinatra piece was n- is a piece of Hollywood mythology. Oh. It's completely he, – yes, he did The Detective, uh, which is the only reason Fox had the rights to Nothing Lasts Forever because they had to gobble up everything that Roderick Thorpe had done. But that had because Thorpe had written the original the, He wrote novel. the original Detective. But it, the, the, the concept that Frank was ever, now he might have had some sort of literal, I mean, his agent probably is the one who's pushed the myth. He had a contractual obligation to do this, but he had to be in his 80s at that particular time. I don't think he could have been insured to make the movie. Um, 
Though interestingly enough, even though it was written for a, it was literally written for a Bruce Willis type of person with that type of sense of humor. The first actor that was officially went to was Clint Eastwood. And Eastwood passed. In fact, I've still got the script where he, the cover of it, he said, I don't get the humor, which I thought was ironic because, you know, he was my ideal for, you know, you know, do you feel lucky, punk, you know, or make my, I mean, he was the, the guy who, before Schwarzenegger, had those type of action quips. Mm. So I, I was really glad he didn't get it. Then he went to Paul Newman. And Paul Newman said, I'll never do a movie again where I have to carry a gun, which, which was a blessing for us, even though he would have been spectacular to work with. He, he made it really clear he was not going to do that. And it began to show to the studio that they had something strange that they couldn't quite get their hands around, which was... They thought, and if you look at that, that was the one sheet. That was the, um, the original one sheet. And um, they didn't know, I know now it's like this big action movie, but at the time they wanted to sell it as an adventure movie. I mean, this is the studio that brought you the Poseidon adventure and stuff like that. You know, there are lots of people. <clears throat> you can see explosions at the top, so it obviously has something to it. And... In the, the very early one sheets had 40 stories of adventure. It's like, I don't think those people would thought it was an adventure. They would have thought it was life and death, you know. But anyway, um, it, it, it showed that they didn't quite know how they wanted to proceed in terms of, of, of who are they going to get to act in this. And, um, and fortunately, everybody started, I mean, it went to um, Paul Verhoeven to direct. And he had done Robocop at the time, and he, he would have, he was like a prime example, and he passed on it. He said, I, I you know, he, he kept, he, I, I had one meeting where he kept talking, you know, almost in third person about the Verhoeven touch. So it finally got to, it finally got to a group of people, John McTiernan, who had done Predator, Predator and he was terrified he was going to always be doing sci-fi type of movies like that. And he desperately wanted to do something with, you know, where you didn't have the dreadlocks and stuff. And, and, and me, I needed a, I wanted a movie. I just out of graduate school. I had tons of debt. I had little tiny children to support. And it was like, um, and a wife I'd lied to about screenwriting. <laughs> and, so, uh, and then you got Bruce Willis, who had done two terrible movies. Well, I, I thought Blind Date was really great, but he'd done uh, a movie with Jim Garner that neither of them made any money. So he was not, um, as they say in Hollywood, he couldn't have gotten arrested, much less a job. And he got the job, and he got the job with a great price, mm. which, was, which was even better. And so you got this, and, and so nobody really, uh, nobody gave it any chance. Again, the expectation levels are really, really low, which I think has been beneficial. This type of action character was quite different to uh, the Schwarzenegger model that, that Joel Silver has been kind of associated with, the muscle-bound guy. We see the anxiety. Um, talk a little bit about uh, how you worked on developing this particular character and also about how you like to introduce your main character into a screenplay. Well, you know, the, the, you're right. The prevailing, if, if, I was in, if I was at USC and I was teaching a class, you know, the, sort of the mantra is, you know, you only have 10 minutes to get somebody to finish reading your screen, you know, to, to continue your script. So grab people. And if you look at the introduction to Die Hard or even the introduction to the Fugitive, there are these lengthy introductions. Um, you know, I think, I think 
nothing happens in the fugitive for 20 minutes, you know, and then we kill people and crash trains and do all sorts of fun stuff like that. But anyway, if you can hang in there, it, 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 my idea, and this comes from the suspense world, was was a, a different approach. Is used to wind it up. It's almost like a spring that you kind of keep twisting and twisting. I also think that the audience, uh, and this comes from just reading, you know, hundreds of screenplays, is that the audience is you come into every script as a just a, a sponge, and and I think sometimes the studios uh, don't give enough credit to what we do as writers in terms of like soaking a reader soaking it up so there's a lot going on even in a scene like that I had been when I was in when graduate school I had gotten a job as a spy for an airline so all over the west coast of of the U.S. I was flying out of San Francisco to you know Spokane Washington or Vancouver or Las Vegas or Phoenix and so I was with jerks like that guy all the time saying, you want to know how to do this, you know, and that sort of stuff. So, um, uh, it, but it, it, it's, it, it's important, you know, it, from, from a daily situation. This is what I was going through every day. And at the same time, nobody knew that I was a spy for that airline, mm-hmm. okay, just as no one knew. And you can obviously tell this is pre-9-11 that he can hop on a plane with his gun. <laughs> I think about that every time. I, 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 I watched this movie years ago in Austin, Texas with about 500 people none of whom in that audience were born when we made this. And everybody, the minute that came on, everybody was like, oh, I don't believe that. that was <laughs> anyway. Um, Bonnie Bedelia's character, Holly, is really interesting because for the time, 1988, she's a very well-rounded, very independent woman. She's very much... Um, uh, she's She very much takes charge after Takagi's yeah. death. Um Talk to me about working out that characterization and whether or not you got any pushback from the studio about that interpretation. You, do, you definitely, I definitely got pushback. I mean, and the studios are always, it's like generals fighting the previous war. Studios are always worried about, uh, and they, they, they still are to a certain extent, though they would say they're much more progressive because there are many more women in the executive ranks than there were 30-something years ago. But, the, um, but my feeling was, and I mean, I was married to a very, you know, um, uh, a, a wife who was very similar to Bonnie Bedelia. I, it, it, she, she felt hated going to a movie where the woman is just simply the, the you know, to be rescued by the guy. Mm-hmm. And so there was no way on earth Bonnie Bedelia, who was not a character in the novel, Bonnie Bedelia's character Holly was ever going to be anything other than what she was on screen. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, that you know, that's. Um, there was there was definitely pushback on that. Uh, there was de- definitely can we make her uh, can we make her a little bit less you know gritty? I think is the word that kept coming up. And I'm like, she just she left her husband. She keeps her you know her maiden name. She's she's living out in Los Angeles. She's raising her children. You know she can stand up to Bruce Willis who comes in and he's an asshole. Mm-hmm. You know it's just like no those two things you can't make her soft and and cuddly and then and tough at the at the same time i also needed part of this too was a matter of bonnie Badi was of, of of the same age that i was which was we had been influenced much more by you know the women's movement than say the studio executives who were 20 years older than we were so it was like you know that was the world that we're living in okay that that was a a, a very progressive world at that point so Characters should reflect that. Talking about strong characters, 
Jill Silver and John McTiernan are not exactly shrinking violets. No. Um, how, talking about a little bit about that relationship, but also in your experience, how did you deal with very strong personalities like that as a writer in terms of protecting the work um, and managing that, when to say yes and when to say no, I guess. Well, one of the interesting stories is in the original draft, by the way, it's interesting, you've got to be careful about drafts that were done pre-PDF, okay? If, uh, you know, uh, a lot of people have never lived in that world, but I, you know, I was talking to somebody the other day. When I was at Fox, there was, I literally would finish a draft I would take it across the street to the steno pool. Believe it or not, it was still called a steno pool. There would be 20, 50 to 65-year-old women in there all smoking cigarettes and all with glasses. It was like something out of a movie. And literally, the, the matron of the pool would take your script, dole it out, and in less than 30 minutes, they had 10 copies of your script. And it went to the producers and everybody that had to be, that was the distribution problem. So, um, and you'd stand there in this smoke-filled room and watch these women type 10 pages each, you know, of the stuff. And then they'd hand it in. And it was amazing how there were not that many errors in all of that. But, so, later, years later, people start loading up. And I bet I did five drafts, production drafts of The Fugitive. And then Steve D'Souza, I went off to do an Eddie Murphy movie and they needed some changes on the script, so they brought in Steve D'Souza because I wasn't available. And Steve was sort of a punch-up guy. In fact, I never met S- Steve until last year, uh, after all these all these years. But he was known for the a guy to come in and hit a line or two or something like that. And Steve's big contribution to the film, and it was it was considerable, in my opinion, from a structural standpoint. His only real big contribution was was the the heist part of it. There were some elements where the FBI comes in. The FBI was was in my script, but he ties them in right there, and and um, so he 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 spent a few weeks doing that. The script went from 115 pages to 145 pages, and then they went they threw it out and they came back and they brought in the original scripts and they worked it and they it became sort of a Frankenstein. But um, but anyway, um, that I don't know how I got off on the on the, the script part, but but in terms of uh, in terms of Joel, Joel had a tremendous contribution. If you got a good producer it can, it, you know, from a creative side, uh, it can actually help. Um, he, he was bombastic. Um, Roderick Thorpe came in and said, you cannot change the name of my, my novel uh, you know, to Die Hard. Die Hard sounds like a battery. It's like, you know, I can't, I can't believe this. You know, people are, my fans are going to be going crazy about this. And, I'm thinking, and I, I was thinking, I was just fly on the wall in the movie. It was just Joel uh, Roderick and myself in there. And Joel listened very patiently and finally said, uh, I, don't, I don't really give a damn about your fans. He said, nobody read your book. The book's been out of print. He said, you should be so thankful we're changing the name to Die Hard. People will remember Die Hard. And, and he, he, this poor novelist who was, you know, you know, along in age at that particular time, was basically told to go sit out in the car and take his check and go buy a cup of coffee or something. And, and he walked out with his tail between his legs. But, but Joel's big contribution as far as Die Hard, his number one, other than some phenomenal casting choices, uh, Joel really wanted Alexander Gudnoff to be in it. And he, he, Joel was also the one who pushed for Alan Rickman 
Uh, no one had heard of Alan Rickman. You know, he was on the stage in the West End. Nobody, you know, I think he had done Dangerous Liaisons or something like that on film, but, but nobody knew him. But he was perfect for the role. But his number one contribution, Joel's contribution, was that he wanted the building to blow up. And in my first draft, uh, it didn't blow up. And I remember saying, well, Joel, if it, there are all these people up there. And he said, yeah, I know, there are all these people up there. And I'm thinking, and you do know, it blow, and if it blows up, they're all dead. And he says, no, they're not. And I said, what do you mean, no, they're not? They're, they're dead if it blows up. He said, that's your problem. <laughs> I didn't hire a babysitter, take my wife to dinner, stand for an hour in line in Westwood waiting to get into this movie, to not see the fucking building not blow up. <laughs> and I was like, okay. So I went back and I had to figure out how to get them up there and how to come down. Um, and I spent a lot of time in that building. You know, I, that building was under construction. And I had not grown up in a world where there were lots of high-rise buildings. So I made friends with the building, the construction manager, a really sick fellow from the Bronx. Uh, and once he found out that I was a southerner who had never been more than three stories off the ground, he said, have you never been in a high-speed elevator? I said, no. And he said, have you ever been on top of a high-speed elevator? I said, no, that sounds really exciting. He said, it is. It's really great. I can take you on. So we go through. We put the ladder in. I get up on top. And he said, oh, i got to go down and you know, do something. So he goes down. And I can hear the door close and the ladder being taken away. And suddenly we go up. And you can hear him in the car laughing like some sadistic guy. You know? But anyway, and sure enough, I didn't know you stopped 10 feet from the roof. It looks like you were going to squish me to the top. I mean, I could still be in that building flat as a pancake. But anyway, um, so he took me through the building, and there were a lot of stories like that. But when we got to the, I had to go back to the building. And I said, you know, John, I said, I, I, got, I got to blow up the top of the building. And he said, well, what about your character? And I said, well, he's going to be right around here. And I said, oh, look, there's a fire hose. I know how I'm going to get him off the top of the building. And he said, well, you don't want to do that. And he went over to the thing, and he went, ching, 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 and it just like, you know, it wasn't attached very well. And I, he said, you know, you tie yourself off, you jump off, it's going to come off. And I said, oh, I, I like that. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, it's, but I came from a school of writing, that suspense school of, of it's, it's the, the old uh, parachute scenario, where, which is, uh, if you've heard this, forgive me, but it's the idea that the good news is, you know, you've just been upgraded to first class on this flight to L.A. from New York, and the, the bad news is that 30 minutes after you get to 35,000 feet, the pilot comes on and says, we're going to crash. Uh, and then the good news is there is a parachute under your seat, you know. Um, the bad news is when you jump out with a parachute, it doesn't deploy. The good news is there's a haystack. The bad news is there's a you see where it's going, you know, the pitchfork. Don't. So that's, you see that employed several times in a, in a scene where it just is, it's a good action scene, but if I twist it a little bit and make it suspense and then bring it back to action, you can keep the audience engaged a little longer. What makes a great antagonist? I always felt like you, you need humor. Uh, and he and 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 Rickman's humor is just so different, and and you just could you couldn't get your hands around. Him. That was the big thing. You you have to you have to write to what you can what an actor can do, but Rickman could do anything. Mm. And so um, 
I had always written him to be very, you know, well-dressed. Well, I, I want him to be the opposite of what you expected in this situation. And so it was really important. It was really, really important to make sure that the audience is, is not sure what they're doing mm-hmm. and until you until you're need, need for them to be aware that this is a heist movie, after mm-hmm. all, not a terrorist movie and that sort of thing. It's very difficult to have... John McClane in the you, you know how these actions are happening it, you, in the novel it was easy you could just cut away to you know we killed Takagi or we killed whoever the, the person is I don't even think it was a Takagi but to, you had to put those two in the, in the same room together and I needed for John McClane to see you know um, to see sort of what's going on but I didn't want it to be Rickman could never see him mm. So anyway, um, uh, there's, there's a lot of sleight of hand going on in that situation. Mm, and it works incredibly well. As you say, with, with uh, Gruber's character, he is, you have this very clear sense from the, the, the very brutal execution of Takagi and the way in which he, he treats uh, Ellis and so forth uh, in the movie, that this is an unrelenting force of nature. He wants what he wants, and he will go to the end of the line to pursue it, I suppose. He, he, there, he is, this is the Swiss watch going on. And I think, again, remember, I'm, I'm writing for an American audience primarily. This is, a, you know, an English actor, you know, he... Um, you almost don't like him the minute he walks on screen. The minute he starts talking, yeah, you know, I, I guarantee you, somebody sitting in Iowa would say, "Well, that Brit did such and such." You know, he got what he deserved. That's right. Well, the the there's there's a method to that madness. I need the audience to understand that he, all of these things that he's doing, are leading to something. There's nothing gratuitous in killing uh, Takagi. He needed to kill him in the violent way he did, so that it would show that the. the the people down below. He's going to keep going through this group until he gets what he wants, and uh, and that's you know the, the, the and, and also most importantly, and this was from the very beginning, uh, the John McClane character has to know that he's dealing with a guy who will in cold blood just shoot somebody who's sitting just feet away from him, mm-hmm. and then move on to the next pe- person. The only person in Los Angeles who knows that at that moment is Bruce Willis, is John McClane. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something that was crucial to put him in that room at that time, which was not in the novel. Uh, because otherwise, I envisioned for the next 20 minutes him to be saying, phew, they're bad people up here. And you're like, oh, you know, how do you know they're bad? You know? mm-hmm. And there's no way to tell the audience after that. So that, the, the audience has become my partner as we've gone through the story, so that when a body drops out of, from the top of the building, is my favorite scene, the whole whole movie in the script and uh, Al Powell is backing away and you think he's you know he's driving off and the, no one knows and this body lands on the and the guy drives off like a maniac in reverse and um, now the audience is like can share in that moment with you because they've been carrying this burden around on their back f- for 15 minutes mm. nobody believes our protagonist mm. and now we're all in this together and we know that there's a real problem up there. Mm. So, This cat-and-mouse game continues throughout the movie. There is the famous confrontation between Gruber and uh, John McClane where uh, Gruber affects a, a different accent, and I believe that was a late rewriter. No, that was, that was in, no, that was in the original script. Ah, okay. Beg your pardon? This is where, this is where it, you know, it always gets a little dicey, but that... The way that gets out had had gone back and forth and back and forth. In fact, it, it was 
it was very similar to how it is in the film, in the in my script. Mm. And Steve did a, a little tweak on it, and they ended up going back. They actually shot it, I think, two ways, but they went back and did it in the, the way it was written. So let's, let's move on to The Fugitive, which is a very different movie. It was uh, released in 1993. It's directed by Andrew Davis. And I believe... Did it start with David Toohey? Is that how, how did it yeah, begin? Yeah, there were actually, it had been around for 10 years. Okay. There were scripts by every major uh, action writer, uh, Walter Hill, Larry Gross. Um, uh, oh, it just, I could go down this incredible list. And the, the Fugitive had been set in Europe at one point. It was moved to Mexico at one point. Um, the two things that, that were always in the script. Now, David's script, and I, I, David was another writer I never met until the Golden Globes or something like okay. that. I didn't, you know, it was one of those kind of things where you, um, that's, he had done a script 10 years before. He was the original writer, and then he was rewritten 10 times by really good writers. And um, the, the, the parts of David's script that remained were actually, uh, there was a little bit of, the Hall of Justice scene, but but like he was the original writer, he should he should be you know he he launched this ship. Um, so I should just say it was an adaptation of a very popular TV, TV series show, of the sixties, which I didn't see, and I purposely once I got the job, of the, 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 the Warner Brothers came to me and they said, would you consider you know we've got this project and we would really like it. They didn't have Harrison Ford, they didn't have Andy Davis, didn't have anybody. And, um, and I said, I like, I like the concept of this. Uh, and I said, but if I did this, it really should be about a man who is trying to prove that he didn't kill his wife, not run away from the electric chair. And they were like, no, he's running away from the electric chair, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. He, he's, he's, there's a TV series. We want to make Fugitive 1, Fugitive 2. And I said, oh, that's the other thing. I don't really want to make a serial. I want to make a, a one-off movie. And they, they were like... He really loves his wife. He, he's trying to prove he didn't kill her, and he just want to make one of these. And it was like, next. And so then they came back to me, and they asked me again, and I said, I, the same things apply. And I said, but I've been thinking about it a lot. And in all of the previous drafts, the Gerard character, the Tommy Lee Jones character, had been the antagonist. He had been the bad guy. He had been, like, the guy who killed the wife. And so there's this ongoing thing. You will never get to the truth because you know, the person who knows the truth is after you. Mm. And so I, I kept saying, I, I think it's a different story. You know, I've been thinking about this more, and, and, and it's going to create, you need a different paradigm. You need two mystery stories going on. You know, the Harrison character is going to have to be, have his own little investigative engine, and now I want Gerard not to be the bad guy, I want him to be an investigative engine, and then we've got a bad guy out there that we have to find. Mm. And they went, Next, you know, <laughs> that's just way over my head. And suddenly I got a call from Warner Brothers one afternoon, and they said, you're hired. We love all those ideas. And I thought, wow, I, wow, that's really great. I've really arrived, you know. The studio is calling me and saying, and then um, the, when I first met Harrison Ford, he said, you know, I, I told Warner Brothers, the only way I'm going to do this movie is we only make one and that I love my wife, <laughs> and I need to be doing something, like doing an investigation, mm-hmm. somehow or another like that. And I thought, uh, I haven't arrived at all. I just <laughs> <laughs> You just looked, looked out. Yeah, I did. <clears throat> and actually, that tweaking is really important, because it, 
it seems to me Kimball is the main character, but Gerard is really the protagonist because he's the one who changes. Kimball doesn't really change, no. which typically for a protagonist, they must by definition change. But it's possible to have a main character in a story and a protagonist who is not the main story. But the audience doesn't know that. No. That's, that's the key. The audience thinks that... Now, I made a lot of changes from the, from the original, too, in that in the United States, uh, the U.S. Marshal Service is not the FBI. The U.S. Marshal Service basically delivers summons to go to court, and they hunt down you know, federal fugitives who get away, and that's a very minor part of their, their job. They are not investigators. Zero. If you are convicted... You've lost your rights. In other words, you, you're, you, you know, I don't have to read you the Miranda rights. You know, everything you say and do will be held against you. Forget that. It's gone. And so I made that change because, for me, that added more suspense to the character because if I could create a really badass marshal who would, and you believe would pull a trigger without saying stop, then you're going to be more worried about Richard Kimball. Mm. And um, so I went and spent time with the U.S. Marshal Services, and and, it, and I was going to make them really hot and sexy and you know really smart and everything like that. And it, it, to be a U.S. Marshal, and I hope there are no U.S. Marshals in this room, <laughs> but you need a six weeks course, which basically teaches you how not to drop your handgun, okay, and how to deliver a summons. Marshals in the United States get shot. Um, more marshals get shot every month delivering summons to go to court, you know, you knock on door at a mobile home in, in South Georgia and you say, you know, this is U.S. Marshal, you know, you're summons to go to court. Bang. Okay. I don't like that summons, you know. So anyway, so this, the Marshal Service is not the sharpest tool in the shed, so to speak. Um, but I wanted to make it a little bit better. So I spent some time with them. But we did have some issues with the Marshals that we'll, we can talk about later. I had to write the fugitive as we shot it, okay, which is not a good way to do a suspense thriller. You kind of need to know where it's going. And, and, um, the, and, and you have to work with really good, or you have to work with a director who will just shoot what you're sending there. And, you, and the actors had to work. But in that very first clip, I brought back, I got, a, I got flop sweat sitting here. Um, I just could feel it running down the back of my neck. That scene where they're standing there uh, and Kimball pulls uh, the gun on Tom of the Jones. They're, they're supposedly in these tunnels right near the, near the dam. And we built on about an acre of, well, at least a half an acre uh, inside a big Westinghouse soundstage in Chicago. And it was just cold as hell. It was just terribly bitter inside. There's no heat. It's an, it's an empty building. And, and the production designer had built this maze. It was like a water park of tunnels that we could pop up the top and shoot and and it was great. And, but they could splash around and we could move the tunnel and there were places for a steady camp. And we got to this um, the scene, this particular scene. Now remember, in the future, we don't have Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones together but for three times in the entire movie. And, um, and, and this was the very first time. And Harrison did his lines and then the camera comes back around on Tommy and Tommy refused to say his line. And he said, it's, 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 it doesn't give me anything to do. It just says, I don't care. I, and I said, well, it's an important line because it's, it's huge for the audience to know that you'll, you kill this man. You know, you don't, you don't care. You don't care about his story. It's important. And he said, I, I think he does care. And I said, I don't know. He said, well, he said, let's come up with some other lines. Oh, come up with some other lines. Which, 
34 degrees. It's like, you know, we're standing in water. Harrison Ford is standing there. He's already done his stuff for the day, and he's being a nice actor to give his lines back. And Tommy keeps the crew. You know, we got we got 100 people standing there, and he kept feeding me a different line. Uh, so um, it's cold in here, you know, and he said, it, it's too cold today. You know, Tommy's riffing off it. It goes to, we go for about 15, 20 minutes, and finally I said, oh, try... No, 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 tell me, what was that? And he said, yeah, try, I don't care. And he said, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> I don't care. No, that sounds familiar. And everybody in the director says, cut, print, you know. <laughs> and Harrison just busts out laughing, you know. He's just standing there the whole time. So we had a couple of those, including the famous outhouse, you know, scene. Uh, he wasn't going to say that line. <laughs> Yeah, so it, it, uh, I, I believe also Russell Crowe in Gladiator didn't want to do. Am I not amused? Right. Sometimes actors just don't know what's good for them. Even though this is an adventure story that has got trains crashing and and <clears throat> jumps from dams and uh, helicopters shooting at him on the rooftop, it what holds it together is little scenes that feel they have the tang of authenticity about them. They're played in a very naturalistic way that counterpoints these these bigger moments. Yeah, I mean, it, it, that's that part is really crucial. And and the other part was really great was uh, the, the choice of shooting in Chicago. Andy Davis was from Chicago. Um, again, going back to the architecture of, of, of of how we did it, we didn't have a script. I had to fly out to Jackson Hole and pitch a story to Harrison that was I just made up on the plane. Get, got him on board, which is a whole other story, and then they brought in Andy Davis, who then hopped on a plane and flew out, and he's shooting a movie he doesn't have a script for, and, and he only has a star. Mm-hmm. So... There is the one thing Andy brought. He was a he was a he was a former DP. He was a former camera operator. He can take a script and he can make it. You know, it's wonderful. He knows in Chicago, it's you know, it's gritty, and he knows all of those places to go shoot, which is just invaluable in terms of giving you what, what you're talking about—a believability, a sort of verisimilitude to, this, mm-hmm. to the place. Um, much the last half hour of uh, the film is taken up with exposition with revealing Sykes' identity. Sykes is the one-armed guy. Uh, his link to Lentz, who is a doctor involved with a dodgy pharma company called Devlin McGregor. And then uh, how there is drug trials, and, and then eventually how tar- Charles Nichols. Is a, that's a ton of exposition to deal with. Yeah, it, it, it is. I, I, and I'll tell you, um, again, this goes back to Exhibit A. Don't write a suspense thriller where you don't know how it's going to end, okay, until you get there. We shot about, uh, we shot about 60% of the movie, maybe 65% of the movie, and production hasn't seen how it all explains itself. And I really got to, I, I couldn't figure it out. I mean, I, I'll admit to you, I could not figure out how to end The Fugitive. And I finally, you know, I got closer and closer and closer to the edge. We had a big production meeting at 8 o'clock the next morning. It's 1 a.m., it's 2 a.m., and I give up. I just, I, I, I give up. I, I, I don't know. I've got all these strands of the story. It's a real complicated story, and I've got a little guy, Lance, and i got, I got all these pieces. And finally, I turn off the light at 2 a.m., and I was going to go in at 8 and say, I ain't got nothing. 
and I knew I'd be fired. They'd already fired me once. Um, they fired me because I wouldn't put Harrison Ford in bed with Julianne Moore. Okay, Warner sent the executive out. They said, we hired her to get in bed with him. And I said, you do realize he's proving, this whole movie is about him proving he didn't kill his wife. And now you're going to have me shack up with her. Okay, and they said, we don't care. And, and, and then they went down the hall and told Harrison they just fired me. And he, anyway, I don't know what happened in that room, but I do know that 30 seconds later they walked back and said, you're not, you're not fired. Okay. <laughs> and so anyway, back to the other, um, uh, I knew at 8 o'clock I was going to go in and I'd be fired. I, you know, I've, t- I've just taken a $90 million Warner Brothers tentpole movie and drove it over the cliff. And I turned off the light at 2 a.m. At 2.05, I turned on the light, and I thought, I know how to end this thing. And I wrote it all out. I mean, I literally wrote the next 25 pages, copied it, turned it into the, you know, our production meeting the next day. Everybody reads it at the table, and they went, this is great. You know, makes lots of sense. What, what took so long to do this thing? And I'm like, oh, you know, I just want to keep you guys guessing. So the gifts, as Faulkner says, the gifts of the subconscious sometimes are really powerful. And, uh, and, and, but that's why you get all of that exposition in the, you know, at the end of the second act and third act of this movie. The, the strains are all there. And if you've got wonderful editors, it, 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 they become apparent after the fact. Mm-hmm. But um, going back to my Hitchcock roots, you know, they will tell you the audience really doesn't care about lengths. It doesn't, they don't care about the MacGuffin that's going on. All the pharma stuff is just the MacGuffin and the mm. thing. And um, I had been telling myself that for weeks, months, and that's sort of thing. But if, the MacGuffin still has to work, mm. okay? It still has to, there has to be something so that people can look back at that. Mm. But, um, but anyway, that's why you get that big hunk of exposition that's sort of sitting right there. Mm. And and it does it does make sense, but there's a ton of stuff to get through. Because uh, well, you're desperate to trying to hide Charles Nichols' role in it. Well, you possible. have to do that. The other thing is, I just think the audience is... We had so many issues. The Charles Nichols role, um, uh, who was played by the Dutch actor uh, Jeroen Corbet, yeah. he, um, we actually started shooting, and we shot the first part of the... If you look at the, at the beginning where he's at the party with his wife and uh, Celia Ward, and, and he walks around, he's got the beard he did, that he grew for the show and everything like that. The other actor who was Dr. Nichols, uh, we shot him. We went down to North Carolina, shot for six weeks. We came back, and we found that our Dr. Nichols had died unexpectedly of a, a brain hemorrhage. And as tragic as that was, um, Harrison was worried because he'd shaved off his beard, <laughs> and now we had to go back and reshoot with a new actor. And he didn't want to wear a prosthesis, and it was kind of, I mean, a prosthesis. He didn't want to wear, you know, uh, a fake beard. And so um, your room came in, and we had to sh- shoot all that stuff. And there were, we, we were able to, to mask it a, a couple of different ways and stuff like that. But, but it's even harder. So when we were shooting that scene, the director would be putting up these signposts that it's Devlin McGregor, hmm. okay, pharmaceutical company. There were signs everywhere in this auditorium and, and, and I came in and I was going in and pulling them all down because I didn't want the audience to know that it was Devlin and no one knew where the story was going to go so they're throwing things out there it's like it's like the gift cart in Die Hard you know it, it better play a part but it also can't tell the audience on in the first five minutes oh I know who the bad guy is it's a pharmaceutical company mm. 
Well, th that's a really good place to draw this event to a close. Uh, I have loved every second of it, and I am so grateful to you, Jeb. Maybe you'd give it up for Jeb Stewart. Thank you very much. That's all from this week's podcast. Die Hard and the Future are both available to rent from Google Play, iTunes, and Sky Store. We'll be back for our final episode next week. I hope you'll join us then. The iFi Podcast is produced by the Irish Film Institute. The Irish Film Institute is principally funded by the Arts Council. The iFi is a charity. For more information on how to support its work, visit ifi.ie forward slash support. <laughs>